You're listening to Field Notes in Philanthropy. I'm Patrick Center. I'm Tori Martin. I'm Matthew Downey. And today we're going to discuss a new law coming to the European Union. On May 25th, the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation goes into effect. This legislation gives EU citizens broad control of how organizations ask for, hold on to, and use their personal data. We're talking about names, emails, street addresses, purchases, subscription histories, all the things we worry about in our daily lives here. In shorthand, the GDPR gives EU citizens the right to be forgotten. They can ask organizations to identify, pull out, and delete their data at any time. And organizations need to be very clear with their audiences about how and when they will use that personal data. So it's not just about collecting it and then knowing how to delete it. It's also having very specific reasons for having that data in the first place. Reasons that your audience members know and can accept. Um, Or... Uh, there's also an option where you can use it for reasonable purposes and there doesn't have to be an active opt-in option. Um, But in general, it's about not simply spamming and being um, safe and secure, respectful holders of data writ large. And the question for us, though, is like, why are we talking about this, right? This is a European Union regulation. Um, We are not living in the European Union. We're a U.S.-based podcast. But the thing is that Many, many of the one and a half million nonprofit organizations in the United States either do work with European nonprofits or they receive money from donors in the EU or they have members of the EU who are literally just on their email subscription lists. So this is relevant to us and we are just as subject to the GDPR as anyone operating and living in France or Italy or any of a number of other EU countries. And I think to just note a detail here is the legislation actually addresses uh, EU residents versus EU citizens. And so residents matters because there can be all sorts of Americans living abroad who are still supporting and communicating and receiving communications from U.S.-based nonprofit organizations. So I think we're really... But then there's also many, many organizations across the country that have international audiences. And, you know, that's, we're talking faith-based organizations that are working on relief projects around the world, uh, student exchange programs, service clubs like Rotary International, Kiwanis, armed services, uh, nonprofits that are, are you know supporting families living around the world. All of these organizations will have to apply here. And so I think it's wondering, is this a sign one of something that's coming down um, the, down the road here in the future for the United States that will have similar legislation that nonprofits want to be responding to or will have to respond to? Um, is it a change of culture that we're talking about here with this sort of opt-in mentality, culturally speaking? Um, and so these are just things that I think that are make this important and relevant to United States organizations. Yeah, I kind of love this regulation, as weird as that sounds. And it's definitely not a sentence I say super frequently, but it seems like weekly an email lands in my inbox that says that my data has been breached again. I mean, the number of free identity protection websites that I'm now signed on to because I am owed it is really phenomenal. And like, I, you have to give out your social security number to basically get a grocery store credit card. Like, it's it's everywhere. There's very little protection. And you're asked for these things that are supposed to be very private all the time. And the more and more we hear about things like, you know, obviously Cambridge Analytica has been in the news a great deal. Facebook is in the news a great deal. The more this issue of 
what your data is, what it means, and how it's being used for you or against you or in service to others is a real serious question for us. I mean, this is about your life and how do you have control over the choices that are made regarding your life? And it's no knowing your rights as a citizen. I mean, you're, you're talking about giving out your social security number here in the States. Really, you give that out for financial purposes and that's pretty much it. I think perhaps in healthcare as well. Otherwise, that's really the only purposes, along with the federal government needing to know your social security number, that's it. So, you know, this is that, what What are my rights, right? And knowing your rights walking into this, I think it's fascinating to watch from a distance because the European Union's been at this for almost two decades now. And now there's this iter this reiteration of this law and we can kind of sit back and watch and see how it all plays out. But to your point, being prepared because this is definitely on everybody's minds. It's on Tories because <laughs> this is a daily, <laughs> daily <laughs> issue. <laughs> and if I had forgotten, I keep being reminded every time I turn on the radio or open my inbox and have a new email from someone asking me to opt in. I've got at least like two or three subscription emails in my inbox that I cannot figure out how to unsubscribe from. It's There's no quiz. submit button. It's the quizzes. It's quizzes on Facebook, it's the quizzes. right? It's the Facebook quizzes. <laughs> you're bored. You want to find out what royal monarch you're the most like. And then all of a sudden they know your voting history and are sending you flyers in the mail even though you moved six states away i'm curious to know which what royal monarch yeah was I? yeah oh it's been a while it's a know. podcast I just make got, it up <laughs> <laughs> i mean i recently got the like uh you know what president are you and i i did get john quincy adams but i may have done that on purpose because he's my favorite all right <laughs> wow thanks that's what we call okay, love. Okay, Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think bringing this, you know, back to relevancy in the U.S. nonprofit sector, um, we're going to have a significant number of organizations that are going to have mm -hmm. to respond to this. There are some challenges in doing that, right? There's a 72-hour, you know, correction uh, time frame that, that people have to know how to you know, respond to. Then there's, for many organizations that are already going to experience this, there's infrastructure implications, there's cultural implications and how things practice happens in the organization. And so I think this is going to be an interesting thing to watch happen. Luckily, I think we've got a strong capacity building infrastructure in the United States that has, you know, ways of responding to these types of issues. They get talked about and discussed at conferences, and then people literally take the issues back home, and then they can coordinate from their, you know, capacity building centers how to activate legal and technology and other other consulting necessary. Uh, so I think that's important. But, you know, is this something that comes into the future for the United States? And we should all sort of pay attention to it because it likely is. And we know that we'll have a serious challenge with small nonprofits and how they respond to the regulations here, which are much stricter than the environment that we've had. And I think a lot of organizations have pretended and ignored some of parts of the current existing U.S. law. But this may not be in their future, but probably in their best interest. And that's an interesting question for the role of trust in all of this. We do keep coming back to the notion of how trust figures in the nonprofit sector. And when trust is present, we can do our jobs. And when it's not, we can't. And we can often do things more effectively than for-profit or government entities because of the level of trust that nonprofits tend to operate with, with the public. And it plays into this policy question of many major nonprofits, major foundations who do have significant international ties 
are taking this on already and applying it to all of their followers, all of their donors, all of their audience members. And are American citizens going to respond to that? Are they going to look at that level of privacy and respect being shown to their data and say, that's what I now expect from every organization. In order to gain my trust, you have to meet these standards. I mean, the GDPR is considered a new bar in data privacy and control. I love that you just went there. And because I think this idea of trust and how Americans respond to nonprofit organizations and having that be based on trust, we talk about this and we talk about that that's the role of the board is to maintain public trust in an entity. But I don't know that people really deeply internalize it. And what we end up with is a situation where people are largely confused about nonprofit organizations in the United States, what they're about and you know what they're here to do. And that people are more confused that actually when an organization has a values that are adopted by the board, that can have huge implications for how you know, what decisions the organization actually makes. I think that uh, corporations we see oftentimes will have values, but we know their value is about making money, truly. But nonprofits can actually adopt values and uphold to them and make important organizational decisions. And I love the idea that policy like this could actually reinforce trust in nonprofits because what we see is when there's a scandal against one nonprofit, Americans tend to hold all nonprofits accountable. We don't hold Burger King accountable for McDonald's actions, but we do tend to sort of put all nonprofits in the same bucket when there's a scandal that Anderson Cooper rides for two weeks on CNN. And so I think something like this could actually help build more confidence in the sector. But can you always weed out the small percentage of bad actors? Will this law in the EU do that? I'm not so certain that will happen. I don't know that there's any real way to tell. I mean, it's and that's that's kind of the question of whether organizations like Cambridge Analytica, again, the really obvious examples of poor data control practices. Is it Cambridge Analytica or is it Facebook? Right. So we still have these actors that perhaps this does help on that front. Yeah. And we'll we'll see. I mean, if everyone adopts these particular standards and it seems to go well for the majority of organizations, then when it comes to those standout bad actors, maybe they will be judged more individually than they have been in the past. You know who might know? Who? We have boots on the ground. You're listening to Field Notes in Philanthropy. Already a fan? Hit subscribe or rate us on iTunes. Your click helps others find us too. Jason Bryce is head of risk and compliance at Charities Aid Foundation, a United Kingdom-based organization that helps donors and charitable organizations give strategically and enhance their impact. Jason has been overseeing CAF's efforts to understand and comply with the new regulations. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here and happy to help. So we thought we'd start with getting a sense of where you are. How is the Charities Aid Foundation approaching efforts to get in good stead with the GDPR? Yeah, I guess for ourselves, it's actually probably no different to any other company or organization in the sort of EU, given this is EU-wide legislation. So it's it's been a challenge Having said that, this has sort of been talked about since very early in 2012. However, it was not really agreed for another four years after that and was, I believe, to be the most heavily lobbied piece of legislation the European Parliament has ever seen. And given the implications it's now having, not really surprising. So basically, the GDPR legislation for us 
will replace the what was the UK Data Protection Act from 1998. And as the name suggests, is all about data and how we really use and protect that data. So as I say, no different for us. Charities are no different, whether to corporate organizations and size of organization has not really been taken into account so far either. So I think it's fair to say it's been a challenge, but as we'll discuss, I think ultimately has proved to be a good thing for Charities Aid Foundation, which I'll refer to as CAF from here on. But so I think it has been a lot of work, but has been hopefully the outcome I think will be good for us and certainly be good for the people that use and trust our organization. Right. Yeah. So you were talking about this being the most lobbied um, piece of legislation that the EU has put out. Were charities and nonprofit organizations across the European Union part of that lobbying efforts? Were they considered in a specific way for this legislation or were they just kind of lopped in the way you're talking about CAF being essentially similar to all other organizations in terms of yep, needing to comply? Was, mm-hmm, that is it's sort of, I think the main driver, probably two main drivers. One, like most EU legislation, the desire for consistency across member states. Uh, this part of the law was, I think, significantly different depending on what member state you operated in, which is obviously a little bit unfair and also causes issues for organizations who operate in a number of different member states. And secondly, certainly from a UK point of view, given the past legislation I refer to as now 20 years old, the world and especially the cyber internet world has changed a lot in 20 years. So I think the main aim was to tackle consistency and to tackle sort of the new definition of data, let's say, rather than being too worried if it was a corporate organization or a charitable organization or any other type of organization. Yeah, I mean, when uh, when 1998 was happening, I think most of our internet access was still coming <clears> off of those AOL software disks that arrived in the mail, and you just plugged in and dialed in, and that's, that's not exactly the same um, level of data sharing or data holding or data protection that we'd be talking about here. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and I think that is an important point, that when we say data here, we obviously mean what everybody typically thinks of, but this can also be online IP addresses, that type of thing as well. So really all types of data you're holding, whether, and that's actually true in our case, whether it's been in boxes, paper data, or data on systems, or uh, really, obviously, now the way to certainly backup data is moving to the cloud. So it's all types of data we've had to address. Then within the sort of definition of data, I think ourselves and talking to many other similar organizations, you really break it into two types of data, one being structured data and the other being unstructured data. And the definition we've used, like others, has been sort of structured as anything that sort of is on a system on a network, on a relationship management database, that type of data. And not easy, but in some ways at least you know what's on there. And typically there are, you would hope, a number of controls over users of the system 
password controls, that type of thing. So structured data is a challenge, but just as challenging, if not more so, has been the unstructured data. So that will be data people are holding in their email inbox or holding on their own personal drives within the network. So I think we've, we've had to tackle things in a number of different ways to look at the data we have and basically where it's being stored and what controls we have over the data. Jason, you talk about how you said there's not a major difference here between, you know, whether you're working with a charity, nonprofit organization or a corporation. And I'm just wondering, you know, what the sort of infrastructure around nonprofits and charities in the UK is and, you know, might it different than our United States experience. You know, every once in a while, I'm still coming across a nonprofit or saying, you know, it'd be a really great idea if you had a website. Yeah. And <laughs> so we have some organizations that are, are their infrastructures are really substantially um, weak and, uh, and, and in desperate need of, of investment there. And I wonder, is there the same thing, maybe not in your charity, but more generally speaking in the UK? And are those conversations happening around sort of not having sufficient infrastructure in the first place and then having these additional measures to you know comply with these regulations? Yeah, absolutely. I think insufficient structure and in all honesty, some of these charities will never have that structure right? because this legislation also applies to uh, sort of uh, girls. Sorry, I can't remember what you call it in the U.S., these sort of girl guides, girl scouts. Oh, yeah, girl scouts. <laughs> yeah, girl scouts. And sort of uh, small, small, very small. I could be talking less than sort of 50 members, local tang village-type organizations who have really been set up just to help local communities. And I think the Garrel Guiding Organization is quite a good example. I think they've had, they hold some past data on sort of when the birthday of an individual was, the purpose being to send them a birthday card. And of course, that's now personal data. And why are you holding that data and how are you going to use it falls under the new GDPR legislation, which probably was never quite the aim of the legislation. However, it does fall under that. And for those smaller organizations, it's unrealistic to think they're ever going to have sort of the IT resource needed. So I think many of those have gone to, to a sort of a delete, if in doubt, delete mentality, which, again, was maybe not quite the, the original purpose. And I think that's kind of why, you know, we're having this conversation. We sat down to talk about, all right, this huge regulation is coming out. It's going to affect some many tens, hundreds of millions of people. And why does that even necessarily matter for nonprofits? I mean, we think about data as really a, a corporate thing, a telecom thing, a social media thing, especially recently. And yet it's those birthday cards that actually make up a pretty fundamental strategy for nonprofits worldwide. I mean, this is really about donor stewardship and the data you have to have in order to send what we would call touches, those quick little, hey, we care about you, you're part of the family, you're part of the mission, that sort of information that now we need to actually subject to real regulation and to be thinking about as data that must be treated with security and privately, as opposed to sort of the big data concept. I mean, the, this data is really personal. I think that's what we're kind of getting at here. And, and a win in doubt delete mentality could really just hold some of these organizations back. 
it seems like there's this double jeopardy really for a lot of the philanthropic organizations, the smaller ones that may not have the infrastructure in place. They're the ones that may be at the greatest risk. Yeah, I think that's true. I agree with what you say, but I think, unfortunately, there have been, I don't want to call them bad apples, but there's been a few, certainly charities, who have been extremely aggressive in some of their behaviors based on the data they hold. So That's I really true. Yeah, but I don't know if it's quite fair to say we are, we are uh, different to any other organization, and I think that's really why no difference was given within the legislation. It, unfortunately, you've always got that less than 1% who probably don't do what they should do with the data, whether it's a corporate or a charity. And that's sort of what we were talking about, actually, when we were kind of prepping for this interview was the notion of the opt-in, opt-out economy and that, you know, you can that birthday card arrives in your mail, whether or not you ever checked a box that said, yes, I would love to receive birthday wishes. And is it sort of creepy? I mean, I think we've probably all received, you know, it's that classic story from um, that man who found out his daughter was pregnant because Target started sending baby ads to their home. And, and really, that's not, you know, it's a different example, but it's not wildly far off from some of the communications you might get from a charity you've supported in the past or continue to support now. Yeah, I think the example would also be, I don't know, you've stopped outside the supermarket, you've bought a raffle ticket for the girl guides five years ago, then you're still getting phone calls once a week asking for donations. I'm not saying that's happening, but I'm just saying that's an example, isn't it, of people have innocently given their data to a charity for what they have believed in the past to be a one-off reason, only to be pestered on an ongoing basis by whatever charity it may be. Of course, and I do want to uh, comment it. That is an absolute very small minority. Of Thank you. Yeah, I was going there, Jay. I was going there. Yeah, uh, because I think that it's a very real issue, and this, I, you know, ability for organizations to attract people that may be supporters of the organization and to build a database. I mean, we're offering lots of consulting and coaching with nonprofits uh, in our practice at the Johnson Center, and I'm constantly saying. You need to, every event, be building that database because it is, you know, for organizations that are one and only mechanism to be able to communicate. And there are a few bad actors, but by and large, organizations are well-meaning in their intentions and their missions are good and pure. And and so uh, I could see this making some organizations very nervous in terms of how do we respond in this sort of new opt-in culture. Yeah, and of course, you, you don't have to have people opt-in. There's GDPR does give a number of options as to how you can use the data without getting absolute consent, the legitimate interest being the main other reason that most uh, charities or corporates are using. But I think what we've found here in the UK as well is that people have, including charities, are, are really seeing a tidy up of their databases when they may have had 5 million names, yes, it's scary because it's being reduced to maybe one million names, but you really have one million active sort of customers who are engaged with your corporation or charity rather than five million, four million of which don't really want anything to do with you. So I think what may seem scary in the surface may actually prove to be quite a good thing in the longer term. 
And from a metric standpoint, I mean, if you have 5 million actors and 1 million actually engaging with you and your engagement then sits at about 20%, whereas if you drop down and clean your data to those who actually want to engage with you, you have a much better sense of what your communication strategies are doing for you. If you continue to get those 1 million actively engaging with you, whether that's retweeting, showing up at events, making those annual donations... You have a much better sense of the work you're doing than to have a list of four million folks who don't really care and are not going to be pulled into the pack no matter what you do. Absolutely. And I think the other key point to remember is that under GDPR, anybody has got a right to sort of request a subject access request for their information. So really, again, it's not a we haven't gone for the delete mentality, but it's certainly keep it tidy always question why we have the data, why are we going to use the data, do we have the right to use the data for what we're going to do, what's going to happen to that data once it's been used, how long are we going to keep it for, how do we keep controls over it. So I think there's a lot of pluses, albeit a lot of work, but a lot of pluses from GDPR as well. Yeah, and I just want to acknowledge, I mean, when you were initially started talking about this, you're saying, I think it's good. I think it's been a good a good thing. And I think there is this likelihood of having this you know, negative reaction to, you know, this rigorous and comprehensive policy being proposed. But yet, in fact, it's, you know, forcing organizations to do some good things with your data. I was just thinking as you were talking about, you know, how good practice and having remembering or putting into the database when somebody enters the database like why and how they got onto the database in the first place i can see that practice being really useful here if you're sort of apply you know applying to the, you're abiding by the rigor of the of the legislation absolutely and i think we've obviously looked at the legislation in detail and we've also looked at any guidance that's come out from various different bodies we've gone along to conferences we've spoken to other people And we've used all those resources when it's come to make a decision about GDPR, whether it's retention or what consent we have. But often our fallback has been just how would we want to be treated as individuals and what would we expect is reasonable. So I think it's really, it's going to drive you to take a balanced view. I enjoy this law so much as an American because really at its core, we, we believe in individual rights in this country, and here across the pond, the Europeans are the ones who are embracing this concept. So where would you suggest U.S. organizations go to learn more about what they need to do when they are operating within the European Union? Yeah, I think the for us, um, to be totally honest, I'm less familiar with the, the EU, I'm sure, has got some good guidance and websites. Our go-to websites have been the Information Commissioner's Office website, which is ico.org.uk. There's the Institute of Fundraising here as well in the UK. And to be honest, it's sort of certainly at the moment in the UK and in Europe, it's it's hard to avoid GDPR, so any sort of normal sort of resources you would use for uh, research, but those are sort of government or regulatory type bodies we've been using. It will, I think, be a continuing moving feast of 
information that they provide, case studies, and it will certainly be interesting to see what happens after the magical date of May 25th. But I think plenty of resources out there. The most interesting things will be what guidance or case studies come out post May 25th. I'll be really curious about that here, too, because, for instance, most services that operate your emails, operate your websites, are sending out guidance. For instance, my my email box has been blowing up from MailChimp in the last couple of weeks talking Hmm. about, all right, here's what you can do. We've preset some forms for you to send out to your audience members so they can opt in actively. They're customizable. You do this, you do that. There's a lot of guidance available. And I have also received a few requests for opt-in from some major U.S. foundations, such as uh, Ford Foundation, landed in my inbox uh, earlier this week. And I'll be interested to see, I don't know if this is a thing, but whether any of these major foundations are interested in helping their grantees figure it out. Because I think part of the problem is simply knowing that this is happening, period, that the GDPR is out there and something that you can use as a good opportunity to clean your data, to get in compliance with some of these sort of, you know, high American values, just like Patrick's talking about around privacy and control and making sure that your organization is not, does not become a poster child for bad data management. You know, and that just made me think, I mean, thankfully, in the US now, we have this infrastructure that's been built around capacity building. We had done profits for a very long time, but we hadn't always paid attention to how to sort of address their capacity related needs. But I think, as you point out, Tori, that they have to be aware of it to know then that there's a system in the states that can be activated, you know, from technology support to legal help to even um, support with the board of directors and helping them understand the importance of these measures and what that means to culture and, and daily practice. Yeah, I think you make a very good point there in terms of the words culture and daily practice. And we've treated this and done a lot of sort of tactical, theoretical things as you do in any project. But I would probably say the main two things we've done are the sort of training and the communication. So we've trained, we've had support from executive level and we've trained every member of staff here within CAF have gone through a training course on GDPR and every new member of staff will also go through that course. And then secondly, I think on the communication, we've been pretty constant on our communications. We're obviously ramping it up over this week and the next couple of weeks, but really the message even from the last couple of weeks is this is a journey. It's not like the millennium bug. A date comes, then it goes away. This is a journey and really trying to install an individual's behavior and also within some of our processes, new products or product changes, always to be thinking about data or GDPR. So I think that sort of training, culture, awareness, and really just we're on a journey to keep it going is going to be extremely important. So you're saying it's not going to be like that thing on when the um, when 1999 turned into 2000 and we were all like expecting the world to blow up from technology <laughs> and then it didn't happen. This is going to be a little more longer lasting than that. Uh, well, I certainly don't want the world to blow up. Yeah, I don't. Think no it, extended uh, blow-ups. Yeah. <laughs> like that. I what? think it will be ongoing. And I think there's a number of big questions that just nobody knows at the moment, whether it's on a general level or an individual corporate or charitable level, 
for example, I think we mentioned subject access requests and really nobody everybody's got the right to write to each company and request uh, to be taught about what data is being held but nobody really knows i don't think what to expect at a, a macro level and even less so at an individual organization mm-hmm. level really what to expect well here's an example so part of this legislation is the distinction between a europe a euro an eu citizen versus an eu resident and this applies to eu residents so essentially you can have americans living abroad and they're could they're living they have residency in on the eu this applies to them so if you're a uh you know charity here in the States, and you're still communicating with folks that have moved abroad, or just think about, you know, people at uh, military posts, there's all of these implications are probably more widespread in the United States than I think even I personally initially thought that they, they would be. Yeah, that's certainly in the UK. I think the, the one point to remember as well, of course, is that some of this isn't totally new. Some rights the individual has nang under GDPR are new or extended, but most of them sort of, here in the UK, you really had the, you had the ability to write to a company and to ask them to really tell you what they were holding on you, often at a fee, and hence people didn't do it. But some of this sort of really just extends or makes it easier, I would say, for the individual. It's hence not it's not sort of totally new, some of this as well. But Jason, in, in the you're States... Right. Companies and individuals should think about where they're based, where they're sending data to and from is also important. In the States, we over-dramatize everything, right? <laughs> it's a lot more fun when <laughs> yeah. you get excited about it in that That's way. That's why we loved Y2K. And as a matter of fact, Girl Scout cookies, they are a big revenue generator for that organization, right? Uh, so, a little bit. Yeah, they are a fundraising machine, I think, the Girl Scouts of the United States. They are, which leads into all sorts of other questions <laughs> around unrelated business income taxes yes. and data holding and... But future topics. Future topics, all. And one of my daughters failed to deliver some cookies this year, but... Uh... Was she thrown into Girl Scouts jail? Because I can see that happening. <laughs> yes, I think that is a thing. She she pled guilty, and uh, <laughs> we returned the money, and there was a left over box. So the neighbor is now happy. Appeased. Jason Bryce, you are the head of risk and compliance at Charities Aid Foundation. Thank you so much for your insight today. That's been a pleasure and happy to help. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Field Notes and Philanthropy is a partnership of WGVU Public Media, the Dorothy A. Johnson Center for Philanthropy, and Grand Valley State University. Our technical producer is Rick Beerling. Joe Moran composed our theme music. The views and opinions expressed on Field Notes in Philanthropy do not necessarily reflect those of WGVU, the Dorothy A. Johnson Center for Philanthropy, or Grand Valley State University. You could just say something like, well, let's bring in our guest. Well, no, the whole point was we have somebody there. I like boots on the ground. I like that. Yeah. You like boots on the ground? We have boots on the ground. I love it. Have you finished enjoying your meal? (laughs) 